Hello and welcome to The Woman Who. I'm Clara Ampho. And in this series, I'll be bringing you the remarkable stories of some of the world's most inspirational women. From pioneers of fashion, literature and television to the boldest activists, athletes and campaigners. These are the tales of the fearless. Women who have defied convention, broken boundaries and pushed the limits of what's possible. I'll be taking a deep dive into their lives, reliving their struggles and setbacks, their loves and losses, and how they overcame every obstacle in their path to achieve unimaginable success. These women are the real deal. And this is the story of the woman who describes herself as someone who dreads parties and wonders why anyone would want to hear what she has to say. A self-confessed procrastinator, a committed daydreamer, obsessed with organising and tidying, but spends a remarkable number of hours looking for things, particularly keys. She's a former children's laureate and an award-winning author and illustrator. Today, we're breaking the format, and in this special episode, I'm joined by Lauren Child. Lauren Child, welcome to The Woman Who. This episode, it's all about you. (laughs) It is all about you. You know, there are millions of people that have read your stories, that have shared your stories with their with their children. I'm sure adults enjoy your books. In fact, I know adults enjoy your books. You know, a full circle moment, actually. Um, a memory that came back to me is that I used to work in the BBC shop um, where I grew up. And every weekend, without fail, because it was a Saturday job, people would always come in and ask for Charlie and Lola books. You know, those books are so special. I mean, amongst all your books, because I think they make us regress, don't they? And I think yeah. there's something about childhood and you know obviously the more and more we become adults you know you really you almost want to get back to it I think when you're a little kid you can't wait to grow up can you absolutely and it's that I think when I was writing them because it is so much about how you can be in another world just in your imagination and they're not pretending to do something they actually are doing it and I think as an adult, there's always a little bit of melancholy because it is that Peter Pan thing you cannot step back into your childhood you know there's only one way that you're going out and you're, oh. you're, get, you're getting older and older yeah. but what you can do is you can you can delight in it mm. and it's lovely to observe um talk to me about your childhood were you a big dreamer as a child yeah I, I was I was very daydreamy and I liked making things and so we we lived in the countryside so we played out a lot so a lot of my life is sort of being outside and cycling places and all the tree climbing and all of that stuff. But there was also quite a lot of just being on my own, making things, doing things. And I think we were all like that, actually. Do you remember one of the first things that you ever wrote or made? Yes, certainly with making things. My mum was brilliant and my my granny as well. They were really good at, at sort of teaching us things, helping us sew and knit and all of that. But I, when I went to, I guess I was just into junior school, I went to this village school, so I must have been seven, I think, and I met this child whose whose mother was brilliant at sort of carpentry. She's amazing. She seemed to do everything. And she was really into making miniatures. 
and I really wanted a doll's house. And so she taught me how to make a doll's house. She, she sort of made a doll's house out of an old cupboard and then taught me how to make furniture. And so she'd let me use all these incredible sort of tools. I love that you had such a strong female force in your life. Yeah. You know, really showing you like the possibility of just having your own agency as yes, well. That's because what it is. I don't really, I don't think I've ever heard of a female carpenter. Yeah. Well, she, she wasn't professional. She yeah. taught herself. She taught herself all kinds of things. She, you know, how to, how to build things, you know, make furniture, how to wallpaper and, lay floors and I was born in the 60s and growing up in the 70s and it was very sort of male dominated and this is how you're meant to be and so I think that made a, a massive difference to me. And then your mother with her teaching she I was guess, wonderful yeah. yeah an intro yeah. to I guess the art of storytelling. Yeah she was she was an English teacher she was an all-round teacher because as you as you certainly were then at village school because you taught all ages everything Um, but she she sort of was brilliant at at teaching creative writing we did with her but I think it was her just passion for books she and my dad actually would would read to us every night You, you know you'd often be read things that are a bit older than you were and I think that also taught me how You can be read to in that way and you'll get what you need from it, but you may not understand everything. So they would read things like the Moonstone or something and I was quite little, but you get the atmosphere and and the sense of drama and all the descriptions. You know, books, are they're such a dream ticket, aren't they? They can just take you to wherever you want to be, right? That's exactly right. And I think it opened up worlds for me. I'm intrigued about, you know, I guess, you know, writing for children in particular. Was there ever, I guess, a desire to not write for kids? Was children's writing always sort of in your core? It absolutely wasn't in me at all. Right. I went to art school and my big problem was I didn't know what to focus on because I wanted to do everything. So I really wanted a course that let you kind of slip between disciplines. So you could do textiles, you could do ceramics, you could do product design or furniture design I wanted to do everything and I just couldn't find a course that provided that and I ended up doing illustration really as a kind of default and I didn't get on with the course very well and I ended up leaving and I did a mixed media course which was satisfactory to a point and I found my way back into that world really by accident mm-hmm. I mean and I never intended to write but I couldn't get any work as an illustrator so started writing in order to to get jobs actually let's talk some more about some of your characters then yeah Ms Bean oh um, yes how did you come up with Clarice well you know I I kind of I'd had so many attempts at writing picture books and this actually comes back to our point because I needed to find a job and I felt like I'm not trained in anything. And the, that recession was had just hit when I came out of college, sort of around 1990. And so it was all really difficult suddenly. And I decided, okay, I'm going to write a picture book. Like, like you can just decide you're going to write a picture <laughs> book. And and I think I kept showing them to 
to publishers and there was always something wrong. They were interested, but there was something, oh, you need to do a bit more like this. You should do this. You can't do that. And by the end, I would follow their instructions and I just wrote the dullest, dullest things. And so I thought, I'm not going to do this anymore. I'm going to write a film because film has always been my passion. And and so I thought, I'm going to start writing something for film. I don't know how to do that either, but there's no one to tell me that I'm doing it wrong. And so I started writing little bits of dialogue from this child who I imagine might be seven. And then I would draw and then I would do some more dialogue and I would do it all in longhand because I didn't have a computer or a typewriter. So I did everything like that, writing, drawing, writing, drawing. And this thing kind of emerged because it was all dialogue. And I realized I like writing dialogue. And after all, that is what you need in a film. And then I couldn't work out whether it was going to be in sort of a film for adults or a film for family or for tiny children. I didn't know. And I showed it to someone and, you know, she was kind of proper businesswoman. And, and she said, oh, Lauren, I think you've written a book. <laughs> <laughs> so I wrote it as a book and that's really what happened. And here she is. Mm. She's got a lovely emotional intelligence and sensitivity, Clarice. No, oh, thank you for saying that. Um, do you get a lot of feedback that's similar, like from, from parents and from kids themselves? Yeah, I, what I like about it is I think I, when I'm asked, I always write for myself. I don't have a target audience because you never know who's going to read your books. And if you start thinking, I am writing this for five-year-olds or for 80-year-olds or for 20-year-olds, how... How do you know? I mean, if it's going to appeal. And, and I just think it's, I just write for me and I write about something that means something to me. And that kind of trying to get across something that's emotional and funny, sometimes tragic, mm. sometimes a little heartbreaking, sometimes talking about the mundanity in life and sometimes talking about what's magical about life mm. and mixing it all in because that is our every day actually you know I think that's what I wanted to get across in Clarice is it's the extraordinary things that happen in the everyday and I guess it's and it's really fundamental for kids to understand that life isn't perfect isn't it but doing mm. it doing it gently but, yeah. realis but realistically would yeah. you say yeah that's right because I think I try not to get into that sort of saccharine territory where we know what she wants and lo and behold, at the end, she's got exactly what she wants. What, what I usually do is it things work out, but not in the way she expects or maybe you expect, but because life generally does work out and, and in your lowest moments, something really wonderful can happen or... You know, something, something, you know, you never wanted to happen happens. You lose your job, then something else opens up for you. I think that's what I always want as the kind of take home from those stories is that you never know what's around the corner. You really don't. Is Clara Space anybody that you know? Is it completely from you? It was completely from me. So it wasn't me. I wanted to write about the kind of child that I didn't think I really was, but I put some things in there that resonated with me because I always had that thing of 
always having your socks falling down, you know, because oh, elastic would always. <laughs> and um, and so I wanted to have her be that kind of child and her hair never does what she wants it to do. Mm. She's more gutsy than me, I think. Mm. And I really wanted to write about a child that actually stands up for things and says things because I always wanted to be like that. And on the flip side, we've got Charlie and Lola. Yeah. Who, yeah, I mean, couldn't be two different siblings, but that, I think that's a great thing about having, you know, yeah. having brothers and sisters, isn't it? You, yeah. You sort of see yourself reflected in them, but then you're also a bit like, how are we even related? I know, yeah. I agree, yeah. Um, how did those two come to you? They came really out of, actually, me first thinking about what's one of those things that happens to you when you're little that was really a big deal? And I was thinking about food because uh, we were always encouraged. It was a real 70s thing, but you eat everything that's on your plate. Mm. Whether you like it or not, you eat it. And I'd have to kind of sit there at the table and after everyone had left and I couldn't get down until I finished. So my older sister used to come in and she'd just go, get my plate, scrape it into the bin and then push it back. That's a true sister and a true friend. Yeah, Yeah. I know. And it was such a kind of simple thing, but it was so meaningful to me. And so I thought, I'm going to write about those those issues. Usually very little children have with food where they, they don't want to try something. And I thought, but who can blame them? You know, if you've never tasted a mushroom before, why would you put one in your mouth? Mm. You know, because they don't look very appealing. I ended up sort of talking to all my friends and saying, what's the food that you most love and most hate? And tomatoes come out really high up as being most beloved, most loathed. It's a, a real Marmite kind of vegetable fruit. Yeah. And so that's, I just came up with this idea of I will not ever never eat a tomato. And that's how it started. But I wanted to do it between siblings, but pick the very best things that happen between siblings, that kindness. And obviously it was, you know, spawned a beautiful animated series. So, so, so popular. When it came to choosing the voices, how involved were you in the process? Because that's not, it's not an easy thing to find. Because obviously when you're writing, you know exactly what you can hear. But then TV producer may have another idea. So how did you make sure you got exactly what you wanted? When I started getting all these new pitches from different production companies, Actually, half of them were for Claris, and I'd said, no, I don't I don't want to do Claris. I, I didn't feel I was ready to do that. But I said, I will do Charlie and Lola, but it has to, you know, these are my provisions. This is, it has to be, it has to be done in this way. So they had to look like cutouts. I really wanted that. Um, there had to be children's voices. The music had to be a certain way. I was really bossy. That's but, not bossy. But, well, you're right. Yeah. Yeah, and I think as women, you know what? I think often we can police um, our assertiveness or and how we present, mm. you know, getting what we want. Yeah. Because I think society has told us that, you know, if you do stand up for yourself, you're being bossy. I was like, well, no. Yeah, you know, you're right. So um, I didn't sign any contract until... I had sort of made, I'd made a little uh, dictaphone piece of my friend's daughter, who was really little, parroting us reading it to her. And so she would just copy it. So you'd read a line saying, I would not ever, never eat a tomato. And she'd say in her little voice. And it was so mesmerising. And I just played it to them. And they were like, yep, okay, yeah, we'll do that. 
And then they had, you know, these auditions, but ended up for her, coming back to her to play Lola, because she was so good. That is the authenticity that children, like, really desire, yeah. don't they? Yeah. It makes me so happy that you really that you held on to control because you know a lot of a lot of creators, especially a lot of women in creative spaces, can often feel like, oh gosh, I've got to shrink myself, yeah. or maybe oh, you know I'll just give them you know eighty percent of all of my yeah. intellectual property and I'll just I'll just leave it. But mm. I think it's good that you that you let it. Well, to me, I just felt like I don't want to let go of something that I worked so hard to create. Mm. It's it's about standing by it. I was incredibly happy with the result and I would rather have that than the other side because it's something I can feel very, very proud of, but it also just feels like an achievement. Yes, I set out to do this and it worked. Let's talk about Ruby Redford. Oh. <laughs> uh, why do you love Ruby so much? She comes so directly from my love of cinema. And when, so I remember when we got our first TV and it was black and white. It was black and white up until I was 16, actually. Um, and I I just remember watching films and just thinking there's a whole other way to tell a story because it's often saying things in the silence. And I think that it's a very big reason why I love illustrating because some things can't be said in words, but you can say them in image, mm. like you can in music. I just love that there are different ways of telling story or conveying emotion. So Ruby comes out of that. So she, I wrote her into the Clarice Bean novels. Yeah, you have a multiverse now. <laughs> yeah, it is like that. And it's she was written really as a response to all these people who were authorities who are saying what children should read because this is a meaningful book. This is a book worth reading. And I thought, who are you to say what a child or anybody should read if it makes them happy and it brings them solace or understanding? Because story is such a way that we could step into someone else's shoes and we suddenly understand more about what life might be like for them mm. or for a child to feel understood by the author because the author has written about something that they really feel and when you get a letter from a child saying I feel like you really know what it's like to be lonely or heartbroken or something then I feel oh I've done my job and I suppose for Ruby I thought who's to say adventure you know a book about something that's fantasy or adventure cannot be truly meaningful and bring you know a lot of comfort and emotion and indeed fact to a child and so I have Clarice reading these books that her teacher thinks are rubbish <laughs> and um, and then I started getting all this fan mail for the Ruby Redfoot series and so I decided to write them but they are written in a slightly different way so they're they're very 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 plotted mm. and there's a lot of fact mixed in with a lot of imagination and so by the end you can't work out which is which as it should be i, I quite yeah. like that yeah i like that too i love the fact that a fictional character for another fictional character can have fans as well yes i know yeah. well, we got this amazing my agent got this amazing phone call from this this uh, librarian in kentucky and she said, 
I'm going crazy because this child keeps coming in and asking me for the Ruby Redfoot series and I keep looking it up and I can't find it anywhere. Could you please tell me, is it is it an actual book? And and I just loved that and I thought, well, it'd be really good to make it into a book. I've interviewed quite a few singers in my time and one of the recurrent themes is that once they've had, you know, a song that's like a massive hit, they're like, you know what, it doesn't belong to me anymore. Yeah. It belongs to the people. Do you yeah. feel that way about your books? I, to- I totally feel that. You know, I often hear people describing my work in different ways or taking a different meaning from the story and I love it because it isn't mine. Once I've done it, then it has a whole different life because they read into it or whether it's into the pictures or into the story they see them themselves or other people or experience something that i can't experience mm. um and so even even things like you know with charlie and lola and a lot of people write to me that charlie and lola is a girl and i've written that you know it does happen somewhere where it said it's 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 her brother and i think well, that's wonderful if you think of of Charlie as a girl that's okay I don't really mind because it's your book now I guess it's about the feeling really isn't it totally about that it's like um I'd never written Clarice Bean as dyslexic but a lot of people think she is and uh because of the things she says and I think actually having read them back again I think yeah, I think she is dyslexic. Mm. I think you're right. And for that, and for that kid who you know is 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 living with dyslexia, yeah, that's going to make them feel really valued, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I do find it really moving when someone takes the trouble to make something all right to you and gets a stamp, finds your address, gets it to you. It's really brilliant. There was one one girl who wrote to me several times, and I loved the way she wrote because she would sort of say things like, oh, Lauren, you're probably wondering where I am. I've been away, as if I'd been <laughs> waiting for her letter. But after a while, I was waiting for her letter because it, so, it was so lovely to hear from her. She made you like a subscriber without even asking. Totally. And, and you, I don't think they realise what a big impression they have on me. Mm. So for those who haven't seen it, um, we need to talk about your window in Phoenix. To have a window, you know, display in the store like that is, I mean, it's its such an honour, isn't it? And like, these are things that people literally cannot ignore when they're walking past. Oh, I know. Well, it really took my breath away when they asked me because I, I was just like astonished. And particularly because it's Clarice Bean, who is the first character I ever wrote successfully. And probably the thing closest to my heart in terms of the writing and the drawing because it taught me how to do something I'd never really expected to be able to do Mm. and so to have her sort of come back in at this moment which is I don't know it's getting on for I I think I wrote Clarice in the early 90s and then it took a really long time to sort of I think I must have I don't know I think I I must have finished it around mid 90s and then took a long time for anyone to pick it up as a book Mm. so it's 99 it came out so the fact that okay we're about eight books later it's now a kind of run of Christmas windows in one of the most beautiful stores in the UK Mm. is just incredible to me uh, what was your process like for creating the window? Was it was it slightly different to the books? Or was this, I guess, a place where, you know, your former art student 
could really flourish and come to life? Well, I, you see, I was very lucky because during the last couple of years we, we've had, which has been so <laughs> extraordinarily difficult for people mm. and, and, and very troubling, obviously, because there's an unknown. And I started thinking, what can I write now that takes us away from it rather than I didn't want to write anything that was about dystopia or mm. anything that fed fear. I thought I want to write something that's very comforting about what we wish for. And so I used Christmas as a theme and it could it could have been any festival that just happened to be the festival I grew up with. And so I thought I'll write about that because it's about community, it's about people, it's about reaching out rather than kind of holding yourself in. So I wrote this story that is, I don't know, it's about 20,000 words long and it's got about 100 illustrations, colour. And it was just great good luck that that was Christmas. And so when they approached me about it, I just was able to show them the book and say, oh, well, there's a story in here that might work and the artwork's already done. And so we worked with that, but obviously we seeded in the circus because of the Fenix story mm. of the circus. And so that's that's the thing that goes goes wrong in the story mm. and then goes right. Whereas actually in the Claris Bean original story, it's something different, but it worked perfectly to make it about a circus. And that's going to create so many more memories for people because I think there's something so special about, I don't know if that happened with you when you were a little girl, your parents taking you out to the shops around Christmas time and looking at displays and just yeah. like snapping a picture or like, yeah. it's just, I think that's such a, such a formative memory for so many yeah. kids, isn't it? Shopping at Christmas. I know. And still now, actually, I really love looking at Christmas windows, mm. you know, and they're really beautifully done. It's lovely. So I need to ask, not a small question, but your legacy, Lauren. Mm. Do you think about it often? And if so, like what what do you want it what do you want it to be? Um, I don't think about it often because I certainly don't take for granted that I'll have one. As as I get older I realise things just move on and actually things you know, people there are new things. Mm -hmm. And you're very lucky if people remember something that you've done so I don't think of it as for all time but I think what I have loved is that so many of my first readers have come of age and so when I meet them as young people um, I just find it really moving if they say a lot of, a lot of the time you get this this thing that's so humbling where they say oh you were my childhood and I think that means a huge amount to me because our childhood is the bones of us mm. and what happens to us when we're little and the way we've been treated the things that we've seen the things that we've been taught or things that have been explained to us or just walked through is who we are mm. you know it's at the heart of who we are and so if they're hanging on to something I've done because it feels good to them then that means everything to me it's quite priceless, isn't it? Yeah. You answered the legacy question perfectly, <laughs> uh, but I'm sure it's an ever-changing answer as well, I'm sure. 
What would you like to see in the future when it comes to creating with children? You know, what, what, what would you like to see maybe change in the publishing world? Or how would you want kids to be more involved, I guess, with the books that they read? I think I wish perhaps we'd stop telling each other so much of what we should do and ought to do and need to do. You know, it's a lot of kind of, and that goes on children a lot. And I know for teachers, it's really hard for them as well. There are certain things they have to learn in this way. They have to learn these things. But actually, we need people who have different strengths. And there are children who are really interested in this, but not that, or really talented at this, but not that. And we value some things over other things. And I wish that we didn't do that because we need to value everything in its own right. Why is music, art, drama and dance not considered quite as valuable as English and maths? And then maybe next layer science and then next layer languages. And actually, they're all equally important mm. to us. And what can we do without art in whatever area it's in. Not a lot, I don't think. I don't think we can, yeah. because I th when you sort of go right back to early man, what's he doing? He's painting, he's, he's dancing, he's singing, and all of that we know. So we know it's fundamental to who we are. And our imagination, without our imagination, we are nothing, mm. because we imagine our way out of problems out of situations. We imagine what it's like to be you and to be me and then therefore why do we think like this? And it, it's, it is absolutely fundamental to being human. Holding on to that creativity. Mm. Lauren, thank you so much. Pleasure. Ending on a very wise word. <laughs> a very, very wise word. Um, thank you. You are most definitely a woman who does a lot. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. Thank love you. meeting you. Oh, love to meet you. The Woman Who podcast series has been brought to you by Fenwick, the UK's department store of distinction since 1882. Tune in each week to uncover the story of a new inspirational woman and head to fenwick.co.uk for more information. If you've been enjoying Fenwick's stories of inspiring women, please don't forget to subscribe or follow on your favourite podcast app. Why not share it too, as it helps other people to hear about it. The Woman Who is a Radio Wolfgang production, written by Hannah Jewell and read by me, Clara Antho. The producer is Cass Denton. Sound design is by Ivor Manley. And the executive producer is Ellie Martino. 